Isaiah 46, which I've been um, woefully neglecting reading up until this point, that's remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, your transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none other. I am God, and there is none like me. And this part in blue is what I want you to pay attention to. I declare the end, and in Hebrew that's the acharitz, acharitz. The last days, um, if you go like Joel 2, in the last days, the acharit hayamim. The last days, those days that are coming at the end of, of this era. I declare the acharitz from the reshit, from the beginning. What is the book of Genesis called in Hebrew? Bereshit. In the beginning, the book of Genesis is called Brer Sheets. So Isaiah, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He's saying, I am going to declare the Acharitz. I'm going to declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. What is he saying there through the prophet Isaiah? He's saying that if you, if you read the beginning of your Bible, you will know what will happen at the end of your Bible. You will have a better clarity as to what will transpire at the end of your Bible. So here we are, and we're in the book of Genesis, and we're studying chapter 45. We're at the end of the beginning, we could say. There's only 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. We've only got six chapters left, if you include today. So, have you guys learned anything about the end? I have. It's just me. I've learned a lot about the end. And this, specifically, the, the end of this era, this Olam Hazeh, and learning about the Olam Haba, the age that is to come, the Messianic era, as we call it, and the second coming of Messiah. I learned a lot about that God revealed in the book of Genesis the first coming of Messiah. Well, first of all, he revealed that we need a Savior, didn't he? And if you don't know that today, if you don't know that you need a Savior, if you haven't accepted a Savior, then, then you're lost in your sin, right? And that's the first step of the book of Genesis. It talks about the fall of humanity, is that we're lost and we're powerless to fix ourselves. There's, in the book of Genesis, there's these great people that arise. And it's like, man, God's going to do great things with these great people like Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Great opportunities lay in wait for these humans. But one thing they all have in common is they fail a test at some point in their life. They doubt, they get drunk, they, they, they take on another wife. The list goes on, right? They do things that displease God. And then we get introduced to this character named Yosef. And Yosef seems to be the capable human that is able to pass the test. And one of the most powerful tests that he passed is a test of being patient, of being given a promise by God that, you know, your, your brothers and your father, they're going to bow to you at some point. There's going to be a great deliverance. You're going to be like a king to them at some point. And another great test that he passed was obviously Potiphar's wife, a test of, 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 sexual seduction, right? And those are two powerful things, temptations that men and men of God are not immune to those things, is the, is the temptation of glory and power, a temptation of, of seizing that for yourself, and a temptation of seizing sexual desire for yourself as well, seizing the fruit, right? And he seems to be able to pass the test. And that reminds me of Yeshua, who was the second Adam who came and passed the test, didn't he? He didn't take it by force, right? So 
people love these, before we get into Genesis 45, people love these uh, chiastic structures. I love them as well. Hey, Bradley, can I get you to turn that fan off right there? What it's doing is the pages of my Bible fell out and they're blowing, they want to blow out that way and I'm having to spend 50% of my mental capacity keeping my pages from blowing away. And the other 50% trying to teach you about Genesis 45. Thank you. Um, these chiastic structures are like menorahs. They are, they are these, um, these bookended uh, symmetrical stories within stories. I know this is really small and you guys probably cannot see this, but I'll be happy to email you these slides afterwards if you want. But the book of Genesis has chiastic structures, like a menorah, all throughout this book. And they're literary structures that, to me, are like the thumbprint of God in this book. And you can see just, you know, like this story of Joseph could be looked at as one large chiastic structure. It starts off where the the brothers hate Joseph. And, you know, then it goes to their mourning in Hebron over the death of Joseph. Then the reversal of elder and younger sons and a string tied to hand. And then Joseph's enslavement to the Egyptians. Disfavor at Pharaoh's court and Egyptian servants. And the list goes on. It eventually hits right here to the, the middle part of our menorah, you could say which is Joseph's brothers come to Egypt for food. And Joseph's brother, whenever you see a chiastic structure, your attention is supposed to be drawn to the center of that chiastic structure. It's, it's bringing you in, it's hurting you and, 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 and bringing your attention into that center candle of the menorah, which in this case just happens to be they're coming, they're hungry, his brothers are hungry. Then you could also look at this in whole narrative as a sequence of paired stories. Like um, number one, Joseph hated by his brother. The causes. Joseph hated by his brothers. The results. There's sexual temptation of Judah. Then the sexual temptation of Joseph. Joseph interprets two dreams of, of his own. Then Joseph interprets two dreams, I'm sorry, of the prisoners. And then of Pharaoh. And it's like all these coupled stories. It's interesting. And then there's this one here. Just in Genesis 45, the chapter we're about to read is a chiastic structure. It starts off verses 1 through 4, where Joseph reveals he is alive to his brothers. And at the end, it's book ended by the brothers reveal that Joseph is alive. Then, verses 5 through 8, Joseph's address to his brothers about God's provision. And then verses 21 to 24, Joseph's provision and address to his brothers. Again, he's sending them out with provisions. Then verses 9 through 13, Joseph's invitation. Verses 16 to 21, Pharaoh's invitation. And what is the center? The very center. I said it, the chiastic structure is designed to draw your attention to the center of that, of that structure. And what is there? Joseph embraces his brothers. And these are all throughout the Bible, but definitely all throughout the book of Genesis. And you're supposed to look at the center candle. The center candle. And that right here is the embrace. The embrace. Let's go to Genesis 45. If you have a Bible, turn there. And we're going to read this. I'm going to comment just kind of verse by verse as we go. And then I'm going to ask some questions at the end. Verse 1. It says, At last... Joseph could no longer control his feelings in front of his attendants, and he cried. He said, get everybody away from me. So no one else was with them when Yosef revealed to his brothers who he was. In verse 2, it says that he bifki, he wept aloud. This is the same weeping that Naomi does in Ruth chapter 1. He weeps aloud. And the Egyptians heard, and Pharaoh's household heard. And Yosef said to his brothers, Ani Yosef. And that's the moment, right? 
And he says, is it true that my father is still alive? His brothers couldn't answer him. They were so, your Bible might have dumbfounded or confused. The Hebrew there is bahal. They were so bahal. It's to, it literally means to tremble with fear. To tremble. It's the modern Hebrew word for to panic. They were panicking. Why? Because this is the man that they betrayed for silver and sold into Egypt as a slave. And now he is the most powerful, arguably one of the most powerful human beings in all of the world at this point in time. They have, they have justifiable reason to panic, don't they? And Yosef said to his brothers, please come closer. So they came closer. Now, this is a, a play on words here. It's using the, the, the Hebrew word to gosh, to, to draw close. He said, draw close to me. Nah, like, please come close to me. So they came close. And he said, Ani Yosef, your brother. I am Yosef, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But don't be sad that you sold me into slavery here or angry at yourselves. Because why? It was God who sent me ahead of you. So here, Joseph has been given a divine revelation that God was weaving all these events together for a purpose. Joseph has like a eternal mindset, doesn't he? He has eternal vision as to what is going on. And he sees from 30,000 feet up that God has had his hand in everything that he's done. And why did he send him ahead? To preserve chaya, to have a chaya in Hebrew, to, to save life. Chaya. Preservation of life. He says the famine has been over the land for the last two years. And for yet another five years, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Yet God sent me ahead of you to ensure that you will have descendants on earth and to save your lives in what's called a liplata gadola. I love saying that. Liplata gadola. Gadol is great. And a liplata, it, it comes, the root is a palat. A palat is like a, to save a remnant of something. It's a, or, or it could be translated as like an escape. So he's saying, he sent me ahead of you to, to preserve for himself a remnant, an escape, so you would have a way out of this famine. In verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his household and ruler over the whole land of Egypt. Hurry. Go up to my father and tell him, here is what your son Yosef says, that God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You will, land, you will live in the land of Goshen and you will be Gosh. You see that root there? Gosh is to be in the place of nearness because you will be near me. You and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, everything you own, I will provide for you there so that you won't become poverty stricken. You, your household, and all that you have. Because five years of famine are yet to come. 
Let me ask this question. What is the profession of this family? The sons of Jacob. They're shepherds, aren't they? They're shepherds. And the ironic twist of this story is that Joseph ends up being the better shepherd. Remember, he didn't do much shepherding when he was living in his father's house, did he? He went to go check on the shepherds, and then they ended up throwing him into a pit and selling him for slavery. And now look what happens. The twist of the story and the the irony of the story is that Joseph has shepherded their souls. And he has brought them and he's saying, now come, I know where there is sustenance. Follow me. Listen to my voice and I will keep you alive. Verse 12. Here, your own eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my own mouth speaking to you. Tell my father how honored I am in Egypt and everything you have seen and quickly bring my father down here. Then he embraced his brother Benjamin and wept. Now Benjamin is his only uh, whole brother, his only whole sibling. The rest are his half siblings. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them as well. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, I put up a verse last week, Zechariah 12, 10. Remember that? And they shall look on him whom they have pierced and what? Mourn, right? You see that that's playing out prophetically here as well. And Zechariah 12 is talking about an event that is to come. You know, many of you already know this, but I'll give you a refresher that the majority of the Jewish people, Yeshua's brethren, do not believe that he is the Messiah. You guys nod your heads if you know that, right? Majority of the Jewish world right now does not believe that he is Messiah. And Paul describes it as like a hardening that has come. Now, there are many that do, and the number that do is growing. Thank God. But there will come a time in the future when Yeshua's brothers will grow so hungry for revelation, for truth, and for bread, right? Scripture. And you see that in the land of Israel. I talked about that, I think, last week or the week before that. You see that in the land right now. There is a deep hunger and longing for revelation of some kind. You know, even though they have centuries of rabbinic writings and things of like the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Talmud, or the Zohar and the practices of Kabbalah, or the writings of Menachem Schneers and all these great rabbis, they ingest them, they study them, they memorize them, but it still leaves them hungry for more. And this talks about a time that is to come, and some people call it Jacob's trouble. When the people of Israel will be, they will be uh, crushed in a way, not completely crushed, but they will be persecuted to the point where they are, number one, hungry, and they are in fear for their own survival. And what that exactly will look like, I'm not sure. But it's then in that moment when they will cry out to Yosef or Yeshua, and they will say, we need saving. And then Yeshua will say, Ani Yeshua, right? And a large part of that has to do with the fact that there are many nations in the world right now, I'm going to get into some numbers here in a little bit, that have already put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth, or Yeshua, or Isa, or Jesus Christo, right? Whatever you call him in whatever language that he's called. What is he in Korean? What Jesus in Korean? Yes, Yesu? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So so many so many nations and so many tongues and languages have put their faith. Do they completely understand Yeshua of Nazareth? No. 
Do they know that he is a Hebrew? Do they know that he has Jewish roots and came from a long Davidic line of, of, of the tribe of Judah? Do they know that he was Jewish even? Many of them don't. But have they proclaimed him as Savior? Yes. And so when we go back to Jacob's trouble and the people of Israel, when they are persecuted and when their enemies are surrounding them and they're starving for salvation and for bread, it's in that moment that the people that have already elevated Yeshua, Jesus, to a place of sovereignty in their lives come to their aid. And that's kind of our role to play in this. So let's go to verse 16. The report of this reached Pharaoh's house. Yosef's brothers have come, and Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, tell your brothers, here is what you are to do. Load up your animals and go to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your families and come back to me, and I will give you good property in Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. This is a a idiomatic phrase it just means you guys know some phrases in the south especially we say um living high on the hog you ever heard that phrase that just means you're living in the best places eating the best food remember jo- joseph is the savior of egypt he saved the the then known gentile world from starving to death and so it's natural that pharaoh And all of Pharaoh's people and subjects want to honor Joseph and his family at this point. And that's very prophetic as well. Zechariah 14 says that in the last days, it says that 10 men will take hold of the cloak of one Jew and say, take me with you for surely God is with you. In verse 19, it says, moreover, and this is an order, do this, take wagons and go from the land of Egypt to carry your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Don't worry about your stuff. Because everything good in the land of Egypt will be yours. Verse 21. So the sons of Israel acted accordingly. And Yosef gave them wagons as Pharaoh had ordered. And he gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave a set of new clothes. But to Benjamin he gave seven and a half pounds of silver and five sets of new clothes. This is a prophetic foreshadowing of Revelation 19.8 where it talks about the bride of Messiah will be given fine linen to wear, which is a symbol of their deeds, their holy deeds. Verse 23, likewise, to his father, he sent 10 donkeys and loaded with the finest goods that Egypt could produce, as well as 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and food for his father to eat on the return journey. And thus he sent his brothers on their way and they left. And he said to them, don't quarrel among yourselves while you are traveling. Anybody have sons here? Do they ever fight? Seems like nonstop sometimes. I would not know. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and entered the land of Canaan and came to Jacob, their father, and they told him, Yosef is still alive. He is the ruler over the whole land of Egypt. He was stunned at the news. He couldn't believe them. So they reported to him everything Yosef had said to them. But it was only when he saw the wagons which Yosef had sent to carry him that the spirits of Yaakov, their father, began to revive. And Israel said, enough, my son Yosef is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. What a beautiful story, right? Amazing. Um, I got a question for you, though. Why didn't God in this entire story would have been so much more efficient and time saving? For God to just make it rain in the land of Canaan 
and to allow all the, pro- the produce and the crops to grow and flourish. And then all the world would look at the land of Canaan and be like, ah, their God must be the right God. Those people must be doing something right. Wouldn't it save a lot of text and time for us to do that? Why didn't he? Yeah, Maggie, I see you. Well, he had told Abraham his descendants would become slaves. Yeah, yeah. He had to get the family down to Egypt. Yeah. That was the whole purpose of this. Exactly. To get them so, yeah, number one. They would eventually become slaves, and then he would rescue them out. Yeah. He said that the sins of the Canaanites were not full yet. Yeah, It yeah. wasn't time to wipe them out. Yeah. So we have a fulfillment of prophecy, perhaps. But why? Why do we? Why did they have to bring them down to Egypt? Why all? I mean, they could have just like, again, it could have just rained, it could have poured, and it could have just made made the family of Israel shine as like a city on a hill, right? Why did all this have to transpire in the roundabout way that it did, though? What a lesson! It's here. Here's why. Here's why. There's a couple different reasons. Number one. To set the stage for the examination of the brothers' hearts. How, how else could it be done? What we needed to see in the hearts of the brothers, in Judah specifically, was repentance. And the climax of this story is when Judah says to his father, and then later says to Zaphnath Benaiah, who was actually Joseph, Take me instead. Remember that? Take me instead. I care more now for my father and his sorrowful heart and making sure that he doesn't have to experience the grief that I caused him. I care more for that than my own life at this point. And then Yosef says, aha, I see true repentance in him. You see, God orchestrated all these events for that very moment right there to see if Judah was a changed man. Number two, to preserve the physical sustenance of the family of Israel. God's promises cannot be made true if everyone dies and starves to death, right? But then why did he have to bring them down to Egypt, though? Maybe he could have worked things out where Judah could have repented in, in the land of Canaan, and then maybe it could have rained in the land of Canaan. Why did he have to go to Egypt? Like Maggie pointed out, yeah, it, it is a fulfillment of prophecy. But to eventually, through many signs and wonders, bring that family back out. Not only that family... But also, as Exodus 12 describes, the mixed multitude who would later join themselves to Israel and the two would become one. It'd be like one new man in Yosef. Or as Paul later points out in Ephesians chapter 2, one new man in Messiah. So in other words, God wanted to take that mixed multitude out. He wanted to plant Israel in the womb of Egypt in Mitzrayim, the womb. And eventually she would grow, and eventually she would be born. She would break through the waters, and she'd be born again as a nation and as a people. And he's like, okay, now I can make a covenant with you as a nation. I can bring you to a mountain. I can give you my decrees and my laws and my statutes. Now we have something we can work with, right? Now, I have another question. Could we have a Joseph... Could we have this entire story without the hordes of clueless Egyptians who were reliant upon him for their salvation? No, we couldn't. Joseph needed clueless people to save in order to preserve his own family's line. 
He needed people to rule over and be elevated above in order to save his very own family. And as I was in Israel just a couple weeks ago, I was walking around the streets of Jerusalem and other places in Israel. One thing that always sticks out to you when you're in Israel is the abundance and the variety of different languages that are being spoken. I mean, I met people from Germany. I met people from Austria. I met people from South Korea. I met people from China. I met people from the United States of America all over the world. I was standing at the base of a waterfall in Banias National Park, surrounded by Korean people, as a Korean lady was playing the flute uh, to an old hymn. They were playing an old hymn, uh, Our Father's, you remember the name of it? It was Our Father's World, yeah. Beautiful hymn, and she's playing this flute, and all these Koreans are singing this song in Korean. I don't understand what they're singing, but I know the song in English, so I understood that that's the name of the song. It was beautiful. But why are those Koreans at Bonnius National Park? And why am I from Dothan, Alabama, why did I travel 6,000 miles to walk the hot and arid streets of the cities of Israel in August? Why did I do that? Why do many of you, you've made trips there. Some of you, if not hopefully all of you, long to go there if you haven't already. Why? Because we are the clueless masses. We are the hordes that put our faith and trust in Yeshua. We didn't fully understand who he was. We didn't even know his name is actually Yeshua, right? And then we found out, we're like, he says, Ani Yeshua, I am Yeshua. Right? And we're like, wow, tell me more, right? I am, I, I am a Jew of the tribe of Judah. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I was born in Beit Lechem. I'm a Hebrew-speaking Jew from the Galilee. And we're like, really? Tell me more. You know, we're like those Egyptians that are like scratching their head. And we're like, I don't know who he is. I don't understand where he came from. But he, he brought us some bread. He kept us alive. He saved us from the muck that we were living in. Right? I don't know who he is, but he saved me. And there's 2.6 billion Christians in the world right now. Think about that. And that number is growing. That number is growing. All around the world, billions and billions of Christians who put their faith in Yeshua of Nazareth without even fully understanding his heritage and his lineage and his mission. But they're just like, he saved us. What he has to offer me tastes good and and it filled me up. It brought me back to life. I was dead, but now I'm alive, right? You have that very simple, beautiful, holy salvation experience. It's like, I just met him. And I don't know all the ins and outs of what language the Bible was written in or where the book of Matthew is or, you know, his genealogy or where his hometown is and all this other stuff. I don't know about the feast days or all this other stuff, but man, he saved me. And when I have him, When I accepted him as my Lord and Savior, I felt whole for the first time in my life. I felt full again. I felt alive. Right? How many of you had that experience? Yeah. And then it's later we learn about his true identity. It's later that we learn he came from this people. His name is Yeshua. Right? 
And we're saying, aha, we have this revelation. But United States of America, I know this is really small, so I would ask Bradley to turn the lights off, but maybe, oh, is he gonna go for it? All right, here we go. Don't turn off the projector. Yeah, yeah. Sorry guys, that was an inside joke. If you weren't here last week, you missed it. He turned the projector off by mistake, but see the lights were already off and I told him to turn the lights off. So he was just doing the best he could to make the lights go off even though they're already off. So we hugged it out later. We're still friends. But anyways, the United States of America has 261, 000, no, 261 million self-professing Christians in it. That's about 78% of the population of America. Next to that, the country of Brazil at 87% of their population, almost 200 million Christians in Brazil. Mexico is third with a Christian density of 90,000 and 115 million professing Christians in that country. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, right? You're thinking, yeah, but they're probably like, they're probably Catholic or they're maybe like, uh, you know, nominal Christians at best, right? I know that's where your brains are going to. That's where mine went to as well. But these are people who, when approached and asked a question, are you a follower of Christ? Are you a follower of the Galilean Jew who, who professed to be Messiah, the son of God who died and rose again? Are you a follower of him? They said yes. Now there's varying degrees of how much these people understand this person, this figure, this king, this Messiah, right? Obviously, there's varying degrees of understanding and observance of his life and his teachings, obviously. But I still find it fascinating that all around the world, there's 2.6 billion people that answered yes to that question. That's amazing. And here we are 6,000 miles away in Dothan, Alabama, and I heard everyone in this room, a full room of people, standing up and facing towards Jerusalem and reciting the Shema. That maybe is lost on you. But if I went to Israel right now in an Orthodox neighborhood and I took a video of you guys in Dothan, Alabama, and I played it for them in Mea Sharim, Jerusalem, in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, and I said that these are followers of Yeshua, of Nazareth. Look at them standing up and singing the Shema towards your city that you're living in. What kind of emotions would that evoke? Would they even believe it? They'd be like, what? I, I know that because I've had conversations with Orthodox Jews and I've described what we believe. And they're like, I remember one said, how many are there of you? <laughs> right? We're honored, but you're also kind of like a threat and you make us feel a little bit odd, right? A little bit jealous. That's our thing, right? Provokes them to jealousy in a way. But another, another fascinating thing, if you go to Israel, you go to Jerusalem, is you walk into the holiest site in Christendom. Maybe, maybe just below is what some people, like, especially Roman Catholicism, like the Vatican might be the holiest, but just below that in Roman Catholicism would be like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? How many of you have ever been there? I've been there a few times. And it's super creepy in there, don't get me wrong. Like I don't enjoy it in there and it smells like incense and stuff and it kind of weirds me out a little bit. It's very foreign to me. Having grown up in evangelical Christianity in the southern United States, it's foreign to me. 
But when you walk in, I encourage everybody to go in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And I actually think there's a very strong case to be made that this is actually the site of the burial and resurrection of Yeshua. And I'd be happy to explain why I believe that. But when you go in there, as soon as you walk in the front doors, there's the stone of anointing. Like just 10 feet in front of the front door. The stone of anointing. This is the stone that many people believe that when Yeshua was taken down off the cross, he was, his body was laid on this stone and anointed for burial. Whether or not this is the stone, I don't know. The point I'm going to make is that when you walk in there, you immediately are overcome with a sense of awe at all the people waiting in line, all the people from Russia, from Korea, from Italy, from Germany, from France, from the United States of America, who are laying at that stone and with hopes for the opportunity to sprawl themselves out over it and to kiss that stone. Why? Not because they're worshiping the stone, but because they truly believe in their heart that that is where their savior was laid as his body was being prepared for burial. And you walk in there and all these people are weeping and they're laying themselves on the stone and they're rubbing artifacts or, or souvenirs that they bought at a local shop to bring home, to give to a loved one who is sick with an illness so that they might be healed from that. It's just an amazing exemplification of faith. Whether or not it's misappropriated, I don't want you to focus on that. What I do want you to focus is on the fact that there's hordes of humans from all around the globe who are flocking to this place. Why? This little rock in the middle of Jerusalem? Why? Because that's where they believe their Savior was buried and rose again. And if you walk in there, you're shoulder to shoulder with people the entire time. And you see just awesome devotion of these Christians. Now, again, I, I've never done that. I've never kissed that stone. I've never, I've never made a big deal about going in the church because that tomb is empty, right? Yeshua never said, make sure you go to my tomb and visit it. I just believe that it's empty. Now, I've seen that tomb and I've confirmed it is empty. Indeed, I've walked into that tomb. It is indeed empty, but it's not a, not a thing that I hang my faith on. It's like going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But it is an awesome experience to go there and to see these people, to see their devotion. And the Saturday before every Easter Sunday, if you get the opportunity to go there, if you're one of these um, people who, who, who practice Easter and all that stuff, there's this, there's this tradition within the church of the, of the Holy Sepulchre, this is the shrine that was built over the tomb of Yeshua. And the Orthodox priests will go in there, like the Russian Orthodox, I believe they are, will go in there. They will light a candle from a candle that's burning in there. They will bring it out and pass it to one person. That person will pass it to two people. Those people will pass it to two people. And it goes on and on and on. Thousands and thousands of people who can cram in this little space and then thousands and thousands of people outside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that candlelight is spreading all the way out as a symbol of the resurrection of Yeshua and the, the gospel message being spread out from emanating out from the focal point that was his tomb. And it's a beautiful tradition. It's a beautiful... I've never done it. Probably never will. I don't really recommend you do either. I don't know. But it's a beautiful tradition which these people, we, let's call them as I called them, the clueless masses. All they know is that Jesus... Isa, Jesus, whatever they call him, is their savior. And that he died and he rose again. Therefore, I'm going to put my hope and my faith in him. 
It's a powerful experience. The largest source of tourists to Israel is the USA at about at almost a million visitors every year. Israel at its peak had almost 5 million visitors in 2019. 5 million visitors from all around the world. And the vast majority of them are Christians seeking to walk where Jesus walked. Paying thousands of dollars to get there. You know, taking months and months of their salary and their wages just to walk where he walked. Am I doing a good job at at explaining to you the devotion of, of these clueless masses all around the world, which includes you and I, right? Like South Korea represent <laughs> 60,000 people a year on average come from South Korea, a really small nation to Israel. Four of the five million people who visit Israel every year will go to this place right here, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb of Yeshua. Just to give you an idea how many of those people are devout and observant Christians making a pilgrimage to his tomb. Now, what is the remedy to the clueless, helpless masses, the ones that have put their faith in Messiah but don't know much about him, but they do know that he is their savior? What's the remedy to that? Because we don't want to stay clueless masses, do we? We want to be enlightened by his word. We want to understand his people. We want to understand his language. We want to understand his religion, his, his, his country, his people, his brethren. This is Yosef, right? The one who preserved for us bread. Or this is Yeshua, the one who saved our souls. I want to know everything there is to know about him. How do we remedy being clueless? The literacy of scripture. Now, for thousands of years of church history, the knowledge of the Bible has been sequestered by religious leaders, meaning the access to reading his word and specifically the four gospels, which talk about the life and the ministry and the teachings, the death, the burial and resurrection of Messiah. Those have been under lock and key. And only religious leaders could read them to you and translate them to you. They were not very accessible. And we talked a few weeks back about how that is changing. One of the most pivotal things in history, and specifically in church history, that happened was in the 1430s. Does anyone know what this is? The Gutenberg Printing Press. You get a gold star today. You're first in line for food. The Gutenberg Printing. Johann Gutenberg, a a German inventor from the city of Mainz, Germany. One of the first things that he did when he invented the uh, printing press was to print the Bible. Now, there's only, I think, 49 Bibles original to Gutenberg's press in existence today. And you can go to, I believe there's still one in the Library of Congress right now in Washington, D.C. You can go see it with your own eyes. I think it was two years ago we were in in D.C. in June. We went and saw that. Stacy and the boys and I went to the Library of Congress and we saw that Bible. Only one is in North America and the rest are in Europe. But talk about shattering the the sequestering of God's word. Gutenberg's Bible just blew a hole in that. And the Roman Catholic Church could no longer keep that under wraps. People like William Tyndale, ever heard of him? 
right? Burned at the stake for translating the Bible, right? Amazing men like this. If you don't know their names, if you don't know, get, get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. There, for hundreds of years, were brave, courageous men and women who took it upon themselves to translate the Bible into the everyday vernacular of their people and open up biblical literacy for everyone around them, or they just got caught smuggling pages of Scripture and then lost their lives because of it. Now, one of the the groups of people we really haven't talked about much in this story of Yosef are Joseph's officers, the ones that are protecting Joseph, that are honoring Joseph, that are serving Joseph. To me, in a prophetically, you know, we talked about Joseph as a prophetic picture of Yeshua. The, the clueless Egyptian masses, they're a prophetic picture of all the Gentiles who will put their faith in Yeshua of Nazareth. But did we talk about the officers? To me, they are a prophetic picture of the apostles of Messiah. Those 12 disciples that went forth and all but one lost their lives for their faith in some horrific way. To me, they are prophetic foreshadowing of the men and women who translated the Bible painstakingly, either by hand and writing it, and preserved many copies of the Gospels and Paul's letters early on in church history. You imagine getting a letter from Paul in our assembly right here, in, in, in just the year you know, 46 AD, and we get a copy of the book of Romans. What would we do right away? We, we would read it out loud. And then we would immediately, whoever has the best handwriting in this place, look, we've only got two more days with this book. And then we got to pass it on to somebody else. Make some copies of it. Or Matthew's gospel lands in our midst. We would protect it. We would cherish it. Okay, but who has the best handwriting? We got to make as many copies as is possible so that everyone can have one, right? Those are like the officers of Yeshua, of Yosef, who not only protected him and honored him, but sacrificed their lives to help spread his message of his kingdom. Even to this day, there are people smuggling Bibles into places where they're not allowed to, and they're losing their lives for it. That's happening right now to this day. So that's why I don't have a big issue with shows like The Chosen, um, which show the Jewish heritage and the Jewish backdrop of the New Testament. I mean, here's a picture of, of Jesus wearing tassels in this show, wearing tzitzit, planting him firmly in, 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 the, in, the, in the position of keeping the Torah, right? And in this show, they do things like say, Baruch Atah Adonai, like they say that in the show. Now, I don't agree with everything the producers of this show believe, obviously. They're human beings. But man, this show is amazing that it illuminates the Jewish backdrop of the Gospels to a certain extent. Now, anytime there is a dramatic movie or television series about any aspect of the Bible, this is, this is Gabe Rutledge watching with my arms stretched as far as it can go. All right, you should do the same. Right? Because sometimes producers of TV shows, producers of movies, they get things wrong either accidentally or on purpose. But it's interesting to me that this show, which is a wildly popular show, is putting, purposely putting Jesus in a very Jewish context. One of the first shows that really goes out of its way to do that. And I appreciate that. 
I haven't watched all the episodes or I'm kind of way behind, but I appreciate that they do that. And again, I'm watching it with my arm stretched way out. <laughs> but it's fascinating. Um, it's a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. If you want to turn there, I'll translate this as a read. But it says, Uzratiha, which is like the root of that word is like zara, which is like a seed that you plant in the ground. God is saying, I will plant like a seed, libaaretz, in the land. I will plant in the land like a seed, varikmati, those who are without mercy, it's lo ruchma, which is like, I will give mercy. I will plant in the land those who I said did not have mercy, and now they will have racham, they will have mercy. Which is also the say this root word racham is also rachum is the womb, like in a mother's womb, to give you an idea of what God's mercy is supposed to be like. So I would say that those who don't have mercy have mercy, and I will plant them in the land, right here. Ve amarti, and I will say lilo ami. I will say to those who are not my people, ami ata, you are my people. Amen. Right. That's exciting. Vehu yomer elohai. And here's the second part. They will say, you are my God. Wow. That gave me chills. And I've read this 20 times this morning already. God is speaking through Hosea. And he's saying, I will have mercy on my people and I will plant them like a seed in their land. And then I will find a people who are not my people and I will call them my people. And then they will turn around and say, you are my God. Wow. I'm looking across this room right now. And we're a fulfillment of that. Next Sunday, a week from tomorrow, I'll be speaking right up the road here at Taylor Assembly of God. I I won't just be speaking. They want to see our Torah scroll, the scroll that we have in our cabinet here. They want me to bring that to their church. Why? Because they've just never seen anything like that before. And, and Isaiah 2 says that in the Acharit HaMayim, in the last days, the law will go forth from Zion. The Torah will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So in a week from tomorrow, I'll be standing in Taylor, Alabama, 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem, where we got that scroll from. And I will be opening a Torah scroll and I will be reading some of it to them and explaining how Torah scrolls are written and how God is faithful and preserved his word and has preserved his people. And you should respect his word and you should respect his people. That's basically the cliff notes of what I'll be saying. But in Taylor, Alabama, 2,000 years after all the events that transpired in the Gospels, 3,500 years after God gave that Torah at the base of Mount Sinai, he says to a people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. If you want to come, uh, it'll be next Sunday night at 5 p.m. at Taylor Assembly of God. I would love to have you guys there. But John 10, 16, Yeshua says, now Yosef is a picture of Yeshua. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd, right? Anybody that says there's two flocks and one shepherd, they're wrong. They're not good at math. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. There's going to be one, sh- one shepherd in one flock. 
right? The story of Joseph is the first biblical example of what? In the entire Bible up until this point, 45 chapters in, and we haven't seen this until now. What is it? When I say it, you guys are going to be like, oh, forgiveness. Nobody up until this point has been forgiven. Now, this is a, um, a beautiful painting. Have you guys ever seen this painting? Uh, powerful painting. It's Yeshua holding a man who is also holding a hammer and a nail. And he's holding, he just collapsed out of exhaustion, I guess. But that's a picture. Yosef forgiving his brothers is a picture of Yeshua forgiving us and his brothers. He won't hold it against us. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I meet a lot of believers and some even in this congregation and myself sometimes struggle with that we don't really believe we've been forgiven of everything. That we carry around the shame or the guilt of things that we've done in our past. God's word says you are. God's word says that that's not who you are. You've been forgiven, right? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So all we have to do is confess and he forgives and his grace is sufficient. Just like it was for the brothers. Because another thing that we see in this story of Genesis 45 is grace. Joseph is a man of grace, isn't he? He could look at his brothers and say, yeah, you messed up big time, didn't he? To the dungeon with you, right? But he has grace and mercy, doesn't he? Yeshua has grace and mercy for you as well. If you are here today and you have accepted him and his forgiveness and his atonement for your sins, if you have not proclaimed him as savior, if you have not become one of the clueless masses, (laughs) then do it today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to your word and to your people. I pray that the words that were spoken today would be like seed sown in our hearts and that your word would go forth and it would bring back a bountiful harvest. Father, may we fall deeper in love with Yeshua more each day. May we come to know him in a more intimate level and conform our lives around him in a new way every day. I thank you for your salvation that you made known to us. And we pray for Yeshua's brethren, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel right now. And may you send your spirit to sweep across that land and send a a revival across that land that would be like none other, where Paul says it would be like life from the dead. Again, I thank you for your faithfulness to your people. May we be known as people who support the nation of Israel in times of trouble and even in our times of need. May we be found faithful to Israel. I pray this in Yeshua's matchless name. Amen. Amen. Guys, we've got about five, ten minutes. Do you have any questions or comments? Yeah, Suzanne. So when you showed that chart of different believers around the world, I found it fascinating that Russia had such a high number mm-hmm. because they had a double whammy against them. First, they had the Russian Orthodox who were suppressing the sharing of the scripture, very similar to... Roman yeah. But then communism came in. And so once again they were suppressed. 
Yeah. yeah. But there was a big disparity between the number of countries size gotcha. is different. But between Ukraine and Russia, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of self-professing Christians in Russia for sure. And Ukraine, which is a much smaller country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So she's saying basically they had a double whammy where the Russian Orthodox Church was maybe misconstruing uh, pages of scripture or sequestering access to scripture, but also they had the Soviet Union uh, and communist revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, which which outlawed uh, religion. Marxism in general is not friendly to to religion of any kind, but especially Christianity. So anybody else have a question or comment they want to share? Everybody's quiet today. Yeah, Brian? And we'll go to Jacqueline. Yeah, I saw a uh, connection there with, you know, it will be like life from the dead because when uh, Jacob found out that Joseph was alive, it says that his heart mm. revived. revived. yeah. So, wow. Um, yeah. The picture of Israel as a whole. Reviving. Yeah. And his name is Israel. So for those who couldn't hear, Brian says, yeah, there's a connection there when Paul says, what will it be like when they come to faith in Yeshua? It will be like life from the dead, talking about his Jewish brothers. And then Brian said, that's a cool connection because when it talks about Israel, the Jacob, uh, finds out that Yosef is alive, it says that his soul was revived within him. So it's a really good connection. We'll go to Jacqueline, and then I see Hannah's hand. hunger um you know that satan can seize our hunger for revelation and his word and he can use it uh to his advantage how does he do that by putting uh things in our path like when you're hungry and you know that you've got enough food in the fridge at home to make supper but then you drive by the mcdonald's and you shoot it it's like wait a second no (laughs) satan can do that he can satisfy our hunger with misinformation and i always tell people that are in that very hungry sponge phase. Turn off the internet. <laughs> Read your Bible. <laughs> right? Read your Bible. Turn off the internet. Because there's a lot of junk food on the internet. And there's a lot of people that... You know, the problem we don't have right now... We don't have, ac- we don't have a problem with access to God's Word. We have, we have a problem with too much information and people trying to capitalize off of God's Word. It's a different kind of problem right now. Um, and they'll capitalize off it by sensationalizing it um, by, by, by misinterpreting it and, and using it to sell things or get views or get clicks. Um, there's a video series circulating right now. People keep sending me this. T- Guys, I get video links all week long from folks. <sighs> and uh, I could watch... <laughs> yeah. I could fill up every waking part of my day with the videos that people send me to watch throughout the week. But one of the videos that is circulating right now is uh, one called Messiah 2030. Watch it, whatever. But I'm going to hang my faith on the fact that Yeshua says, no matter how strong a calculator you got, no man knows the day or the hour. I've seen too many people 
who have hung their faith on a date and then it not come to pass and their faith is diminished and doubt takes hold. Now watch it. That's fine. I don't care. It's your time. But maybe he'll come back in 2030. That would be awesome. But you know what would be cooler is he came back like right now. Amen. Right? Amen. I always say live, live like he's coming back now, but teach like he's not coming back in your lifetime. So that's fine if you want to spend two and a half hours, three hours watching that. But um, just know no man knows the day or the hour. So we either believe that or we don't believe that. So anyways, I went off a tangent. But yeah, thank you, Jacqueline, for sharing that. And so um, we'll uh, Hannah then Brian. Sorry. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of how like Joseph's brothers wronged him, and then they came back, and Joseph closed them. Kind of reminds me of how in the Garden of Eden, when Adam yeah. sinned, yeah. and God turned Very them. good connection. I, I didn't make that connection. That God gives us clothes that He wants us to wear, doesn't He? And sometimes we clothe ourselves with things that are like our own attempts to purify ourselves or make us righteous, right? And then He's like, "Nope, take that and put this on instead, like garments of salvation," right? So very good connection. And I saw Brian. Yeah. I don't have a video link for this. So. <laughs> you don't have a video link for this? Okay. No, Bummer. Uh, personal opinion, uh, but I think it goes along with the story and, and the connection of Joseph. Uh, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, the last verse of Matthew 23. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I believe that uh, he may not return until the Jewish people say that. Mm. He says, you will not see my face again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until they come mm. and he's revealed to his brothers. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, which means, you know, keep your eyes. I'm not saying don't watch for his return. We should be watching for his return. We should be alert and awake. Um, but yeah, that's interesting that we should be watching specifically the Jewish people and the nation of Israel as as at the forefront of all eschatology and end times. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, say something. 